Hello, and welcome to Living Heritage, a show about people who are engaged in the heritage and culture sector, all those who keep heritage alive at the community level. I'm Dale Jarvis, and today's guest is Dave Padden. Dave is a writer and a performer of recitations. He is originally from Northwest River, Labrador, and is descended from two generations of pioneer doctors and nurses who lived and worked in Labrador. He currently lives in St. John's and makes his living as a pilot for Air Canada. Dave, welcome to the show. Hi there, Dale. Nice to be here. It is very nice to have you. I know this is kind of short notice. You were off halfway across the country or more, I think, when we first talked. Yeah, I got got your email in Victoria. (laughs) I guess that's the nature of being an airline pilot. You never know where you're going to be here and there there from day to day. I want to talk to you about Labrador and some of your Labrador memories. So okay. you were you born in Northwest River? Uh, actually, no. I was born in St. Anthony yeah. because uh, doctors are notoriously afraid to deliver their own kids. So dad shipped me <laughs> off to – or shipped mom off to uh, St. Anthony. Yeah. And uh, two weeks later, we were back in Northwest River. Yeah. So you were born a Newfoundlander. Yes. But grew up in Labrador. The central – the most central part of the province, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Geographically Geographically. Speaking. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so what was that like growing up in Northwest River? Oh, it was great. Uh, strikes me more and more as I get older how great it was. Yeah. Why, why is that? Well, I think we benefited, if that's the word I can use, from uh, the sort of isolation there. And uh, you couldn't get in and out of there very easily then. Um, and our parents were uh, apt to let us run wild. We were sort of feral half the time. You right, know? yeah. And we're out the door in the morning. If we weren't off to school when we were just out the door in the morning, running for lunch for 20 minutes and out the door again and play all day long. Yeah, yeah. That's a nice thing about living in kind of a wild area is that you have that yeah. access. And, it, and was, it was good. Kids today might not have the same kind of no, experience. No, and I, I, well, you know, 80% of us or something live in cities now in Canada. So, yeah. Uh, the opportunities aren't there, but I guess they have other types of fun. So how, how big was Northwest River? How many people would have lived there when you were a kid? I think back in, in those days, which was the 60s, I suppose, I'm guessing around 300 or so. Right, yeah. And so people would have known each other. and Oh, yeah. Everybody yeah. knew everybody. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Uh, so I, I'm curious about your, your family's history. So who, who was the first Padden that settled there? My grandfather, Harry Padden, and my grandmother, uh, Mina Gilchrist, came to work for Wilfred Grenfell. Yep. Grandfather came from England. Grandmother came from New Brunswick uh, in 1912. And uh, they met in Battle Harbor and got aboard the same vessel there and went to Indian Harbor to run a small cottage hospital Right, that was there, which they did for the next 30 years or so. So was she a nurse? Yep, she was a nurse. Yeah, yeah. and so she had that... Office romance and uh, yeah, I think so. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. I'm sure that was a common story in those days. So. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So he had, he had come from England yes. and ended up in Labrador. Yeah. And uh, and did he fit in right away? Do you think or did he uh, fit in? I I don't know. I suppose he was uh, part of the uh, what professional elite there. I I suppose if that's the right word to use, he was the doctor. Yeah. They, they ran the, uh, him and uh, grandmother ran the hospital in Indian Harbor for the uh, fishing fleets, mainly, okay. in, starting out in the summers. So for the liviers who lived there, also for the uh, stationers and the, and the floaters. And uh, in the winter, starting in 1915, they operated a small uh, medical center in Mud Lake, Okay. For a couple of years. Yeah. And uh, then they built the first hospital in Northwest River. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so do you have memories of your grandfather? No. He no. died in 1939 at uh, age 59, which is what I am now. Right, yeah. yeah so that's fairly young. Yeah, he basically wore himself out. Yeah. Uh, and uh, then he, he was on a train in the U.S. and uh, appendix ruptured, oh. pre, pre-antibiotics. Right, and, yeah. And uh, he didn't have the, the resistance to sort of fight the infection. He died pretty quickly, I guess. Yeah, and what about your grandmother? She lived to, oh gosh, 80-something, yeah. I guess, uh, in Northwest River. He died just as the war started, so she ran the hospital in Northwest River for the war years. Right. Until uh, my father came back from the war, and, and he took over, and she was she was pretty uh, pretty well exhausted by then. She was, she was ordered to come to Buckingham Palace to get the order of the British Empire, and she said uh, she sent a note saying thanks, but put it in the mail. I'm too busy. <laughs> Basically, what she said. Right. Yeah. Because they would have really been the the only medical facility there for for miles. For miles, uh, miles Northwest River. Well, first Mud Lake, and yeah. then Northwest River. Yeah. Uh, Mud Lake closed. Northwest River was it for for many years till they built a hospital in Happy Valley. Yeah. When was that? In the sixties. In the sixties. Like so that. yeah. So yeah. the base would have come first, I guess, and then the hospital. Yeah. Uh, second. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so your father then grew up in in Labrador. Oh yes, he was born in Indian Harbor. Born in Indian Harbor, and uh, and then he went off to to study medicine where? Uh, at uh, the medical school. It, it's uh, it's in New York. Okay. I can't remember the name of it now offhand, but uh, yeah, he went there. Just before the war, yeah, and he was qualified more or less as the war started. So he uh, he signed up for the Royal Canadian Naval Volunteer Reserve, right? And that's where he, sh- he spent his war years. Yeah, in the North Atlantic, yeah, Normandy, places like that. Yeah, <clears throat> you, you've been doing some writing uh, lately about your grandfather yeah. and and whatnot. So c- tell me about that. Where's that? Where's that coming from? It's just fascinating. Uh, these were papers that were at home, and. Uh, a funny thing happened. <laughs> These are handwritten and typewritten letters and notes from as early as 1912. Yeah. And on paper, obviously, and they're in perfect shape. They'll be around for another 100 years. I put some of them on my iPad the other day, and a month later, there's no sign of them. <laughs> yeah, we live in that age, that don't we? Great? Yeah, it's just everything's ephemeral. It just kind of yeah, disappears. Yeah. But they do make very interesting reading. They give yeah. a look at what Labrador was like pre-First World War. And uh, it was it was pretty, I guess we describe it as third world now. Tuberculosis was just rampant, right? Killing and maiming huge numbers of people, and uh, malnutrition, old diseases, berry berry rickets, yeah, uh, scurvy, yeah. They were taking him. So your grandfather would have been in Labrador uh, during the Spanish flu. Uh, oh yeah, uh, he yeah. got the flu. Oh wow! And uh, but he survived. My grandmother and a few other uh, women more or less took care of Northwest River. Right. Everybody was, everybody was sick pretty well. There was only one fatality. It wasn't like out, out on the coast. It wasn't like Olcock, for instance, yeah, where like everybody o- except one little girl. Yeah, yeah. 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 It was an astonishing uh, sickness, you know, I think, yeah. at that time. Yeah. And smallpox was there at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, so I think, you know, combined with the end of the war, it must have just 16 million dead in the war, and now the Spanish flu. It must have seemed like... The end, the end of the world. times or something. Yeah, 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 absolutely, yeah. So he he was a, a doctor, but he was also a, a trapper, was he? Was no, he, no, he, he didn't gave a, trap. He had uh, a trapping business of some kind or no, fur business? No, I, did I give that impression in what I wrote? No, he didn't. He wasn't oh, a trapper. Okay. He was too busy. Uh, 
When they opened Northwest River, it, there was a couple of trapping families ah, there, okay. and yeah. it became a center of tra- for trappers. And many of them would go out in the fall from Northwest River to as much as 300 miles inland. Yeah. And uh, sort of in all directions, some of them were closer. And um, basically, uh, their their families and you know their medical complaints—that's what he he looked after. But he would also travel many. Uh, Every winter, he'd get on a dog team and go as far north on the Labrador coast as anybody lived. Right. And then south as well. So he did that, I guess, I don't know how long. He was in his 50s, and he was still traveling by dog team. Yeah, that's that's impressive. Because it would have been quite... It's, it's, it's a huge it's a huge oh, area, yeah. a huge territory to to cover yeah. medically. There's yeah. thousands of miles every year. Yeah, you know? yeah. And um, then my father did it after World War II dog teams as well. And they had a various... Uh, hospital vessels in the summer yeah and um dad was doing dog team trips until bush planes came along yeah you you have a really interesting story about your father and um antibiotics this uh, oh yeah this that's, amazing that's story one. and he never told me yeah so I, how, did, how did you hear the story i found out from my cousin who came over as a volunteer with the grenfell mission and who actually dad put him in charge of running the little dispensary they yeah. had at the hospital and doing a bunch of other things, cataloging x-rays, because their x-ray surveys were everything then for, for TB. But, yeah, how um, do I start that? Well, you, you're aware of all the aircraft that were heading overseas during mm. World War II. Uh, pilot experience was terrible, virtually zero, and there was a lot of accidents, especially trying to get in and out of Goose Bay. Right. And towards the end of the war, an American B-24 Liberator, a big four-engine bomber full of um, supplies, freight, left Goose Bay, one of many, and it came down not too long after. It looked like it's about 10 minutes afterwards. Hmm. Crashed onto the ice, went through the ice. As far as I know, everybody was killed, but uh, it went to the bottom of Lake Melville and uh, stayed there for the winter. Then Dad got back in the spring from his war service. And uh, he was walking home one day. He had a hospital full of TB patients and other things. Walking home one day, and a local youngster came up to him and held up a little glass bottle and said, Doctor, what's this? And he looked at it, and it was a, it was a bottle of the very latest antibiotics. They'd only been developed during the war. It was penicillin. And uh, they, were, they were worth their weight in gold, literally, because they were so rare. There was a black market in them. And it was 10,000 units of, of penicillin, and he... He was gobsmacked, as you would be. He said, where do you get that? Oh, the beach is full of them, doctor. So he went down to the beach, Northwest River, and they were drifting in all over the place. And they'd been stuck under the ice for the winter Yeah. and uh, floated ashore in the spring. And he got about uh, between four and 500 of these little uh, ampules. Yeah. And it was just, that's how Labrador got his first antibiotics, other than, I guess, the American base. Yeah. And uh, it and was just a lifesaver. And for did, so didn't he, did he organize some kind of competition to see who could yeah. uh, produce the most? He instituted a, a contest, and he said, uh, I'll give you a penny for, I don't know if it was every one or every ten or whatever you can, you can pick up. So everybody was out uh, collecting them, and I'm told by one of the older fellows at home that a gentleman named Sandy Rich won the prize for picking up the most. They were coming ashore all over the head of Lake Melville. Yeah. And I've talked to Dick Budgel. He picked some up. And um, 
It was, it just it was manna from heaven. You know, I talk about every cloud having a silver lining. Yeah, yeah, and it must have been magical in a way because you yeah. know at those days you know diseases weren't uh, resistant to those types of uh, types of medicines and. No, uh, ten thousand units was enough to to. Well, my mother gave the stuff. She was a nurse during the Blitz in London, World War Two. Yeah, and she can remember giving it, and people would just get better right in front of you, just about with 10,000 units, which is now, you know, a typical adults now, I think, is a couple of million units, and, and then it doesn't work sometimes. Right, yeah, yeah. So really, that's why they call it a miracle drug. Yeah. And one of the first people to get it was a little girl named Stephanie Peacock, who was dying of pneumonia, something like this. She wasn't probably not going to survive, and uh, she got it, and she's, I think she's retired in Gander now. Right, yeah. <laughs> So Peacocks, would she have been related to the Moravian? Doris and Bill, yeah, yeah that was okay. her daughter. Yeah. yeah, yeah, these are great Labrador names here. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so both your parents kind of had uh, experience during the, during the Second World War. Yes, uh, Dad was on North Atlantic convoy escorts, and then on minesweepers at Normandy, and then in 1945 his uh, ship was torpedoed, and this rear 60 half of 60 feet of the ship was blown off. And uh, the rest of it was towed into Plymouth, I think, but they rolled it off. The, the war was almost over then anyway, so they just scrapped it. Mm -hmm. And Mum was uh, nursed all through the Blitz in central London, uh, had a direct hit by a V-1 buzz bomb one night on one wing of the hospital, and uh, all kinds of amazing things. And did they, did they talk about those experiences? Yeah, Dad, uh, Dad was always too busy pretty well. He <laughs> told me a few things, few stories from the war but they were always f the funny stuff yeah you know there's funny stuff in war yeah and that's pretty well all he ever told me does, does something stick in your mind or one of his uh, oh gee um, that you can repeat on radio <laughs> oh yeah yeah um oh this was a story of uh, being in the middle of the atlantic and getting summoned to the fleet commodore's destroyer because a man was aboard with appendicitis and having to go across in a small boat and very rough water and uh, then you, to do the incision, do the operation you needed things to be still for a bit so he told the skipper I need you to stop if you can because there were submarines around and just stay, keep the sh ship as still as possible for about 10 minutes till I, I don't know, I'm not sure how long <laughs> but the skipper didn't think too much of that, he said well I'll do my best so he, he did and uh, they started the operation, Dad and his assistant. And then a fly, a blue fly, came and landed right on where they were going to make the incision. That's not very sterile. So, <laughs> so they had to get rid of the fly. So the skipper came down to see how things were going. And he was greeted by the sight of these two people in masks and gowns running around trying to swat something, right, you know. <laughs> and uh, he wasn't too impressed. <laughs> Anyway, uh, they managed to do the operation, and everything was, was good. Yeah. Yeah. So did he uh, meet your mother during the war, or had they, did no. they know each other before the war? No. Uh, Mom came out to Labrador after the war in 1947, initially. I oh, think. okay. I mean, sometimes I think she was a little bored with peacetime. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and she wanted an adventure. Yes. Yeah, so she came out uh, to Harrington Harbor at first and uh, nursed there for a winter, and then she was with the Grenfell Mission, then she was transferred to Northwest River. Yeah. And uh, when she got there, Dad was just getting ready to go north on one of his medical patrols. So he said, uh, 
there's this, there's this, see you, I'll be back in five weeks. And she more or less looked after the station until he got back. Yeah. And she had a number of adventures in her own right, for sure. Such as? Oh, one night uh, she got called to go across to what is now Chagy f- to, uh, for a delivery. And a man came and got her in a canoe. There was no language, you know. They couldn't speak, communicate, but he just said, come on. And so they went across Northwest River in a canoe, and there was a tent. There was all tents there then. And uh, she went to this one tent, and there was a woman, a young woman, about to deliver, and uh, uh, three or four older ladies who were there as well. And uh, she couldn't see any need for her. I mean, the delivery went fine, and everything was good, and she didn't really have much to do. And then in, sometime in the wee hours of the morning, the, the ladies called the, the uh, canoe paddler back, and, and she got a ride back over to the other side, to Northwest River. So... When Dad got back five weeks later, she told him about this. And she said, but they didn't seem to need me for anything. And he said, oh, no, they didn't need you. They just wanted to see the new nurse. <laughs> <laughs> so they brought her out just to check her out. Yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. So it must have been, it must have been quite a, a change for her to come from, you know, London to Northwest River. Yeah. Oh, yes, I think so. Yeah. But she was uh, very well trained, and she was up for a bit of adventure. Like she said, you know, I was young and strong. I could, I felt like I could do anything. Yeah, and, uh, and uh, she managed very well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, you you come from this line of doctors and nurses, uh, and and you you escaped that. Uh, you didn't go that route. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. My sister became a nurse, but myself, my two brothers, no interest in medicine at all. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, growing up in Northwest River, what was your what, what were your chi- what was your childhood memories like? What, what, what do you remember from uh, from I'm that sorry, era? Sorry, I have a cough. That's right. Um, a lot of outdoor time. Yeah, uh, winter and summer. You're hardly ever in. I can sort of remember when TV first came along. So I'm one of those older people who can see the effect that it's had on society. And, yeah. Yeah, uh, I wouldn't classify it as a good one. Yeah. You know, everybody was outside all the time then. and uh, But very quickly, we got used to sitting inside and staring at a screen. Yeah, And it, I don't know, it, was, it still strikes me as strange, you know. It, we would rather watch bad television than no television. Hmm. And we, we were, I guess, in the first generation that made that transition to, to sitting still looking at screens all day long. Yeah, And uh, I don't think of it as being ideal that's for sure so you know you've you've developed this uh other life now as a performer you know <laughs> yeah. as a recitationist and whatnot did when you were growing up were there was recitation something that happened in the community or did people make have little skits or perform or not so much recitations now there was a lot of music a lot of uh, a lot of gathering at various houses or in trappers tilts and whatnot where yeah and stories lots of stories which were you know by various degrees, not totally accurate, shall we say. <laughs> yes, yeah. Uh, a lot of exaggeration, whatnot. And so he gave me lots of material and yeah. a lot of larger-than-life figures who, you know, they feature in my in my recitations. Yeah. Uh, remarkable people. And the old trappers were the, probably the most remarkable of all. They were great for entertainment. Uh, to go to an old trapper's cabin um, in the evening... And spend the evening just listening to them. 
just a wonderful thing. Yeah, because they would have had stories about their their life on the trap lines and. Oh yeah. Yeah. And then you know it would it would veer off into things that might be of a questionable veracity, shall we say? <laughs> that tall tale tradition. Yeah, yeah, tall tales. That was a great bit of fun. Yeah. So that's certainly had an influence then on, yes. on your work. Yeah, yes. yeah. So how did you get started with recitations then? What was the inspiration for you? St. John's. As far as I can tell, uh, myself and my wife Kim, we uh, we moved away 20, well, we were gone 20 years. And, you know, for my aviation career, basically. And uh, there was no inkling of it. Mm-hmm. And uh, about a year after we moved back to St. John's, I wrote my first recitation. Just came out of the blue, seemed like anyway. Yeah. And it seemed to go over okay. Went down to the Crow's Nest to uh, to Song Circle, which I encourage everybody to go to yes. last Thursday of the month. And storytelling. Yeah. Second Tuesday of the month. I yeah. Think. And I tried it out, and people seemed to like it. So yeah. I, said, <laughs> so I wonder if I could write another one. And now I've, I've written seventeen. Yeah. And, and you've performed internationally with some of the, you were off in Ireland. What was the? Team? Oh yeah, I got invited to uh, the Bird of Armagh, the uh, Festival of Humorous Verse yeah. in Armagh, Northern Ireland. That was wonderful. And they, you know, I did one of mine over there, uh, and they didn't quite understand it all. I said, I think I spent as much much time setting it up as actually <laughs> doing it. But they were really polite and really nice, you know, and I got a, a thunderous applause. There was a thousand people there. Yeah, they really appreciate Yeah, they it. really love their arts, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, do, you, do you have a favorite recitation? Could you give us one of one of yours? I could try. I'm going to tell you I got a, a persistent cough, so and I haven't done this for a while, so I'll do my best to get through it. All right. It's, uh, it's called The Twelve, and it's about uh, that wonderful uh, contraption, the Twelve-Land Snowmobile by Mr... Bombardier, and anybody who's listening who's from out around the bay will know what a 12 land is. Every, for everybody else, it's a tiny little snowmobile of 12 whole horsepower, and uh, people still use them now to pull firewood out of, you know, and they're sort of mythical, mythical creatures. Right, yeah. And uh, I'll show you why, anyway. Consider, my friends, if you would, for a bit, a debate in which you will have to admit Disagreements abound, and tempers get frayed. What's the greatest invention that ever was made? Some say the computer, the wheel, it's been said. And then there's the airplane, or even sliced bread. But no, the world's greatest invention, as I now will reveal, was Mr. Bombardier's 12 land snowmobile. Light as a feather, strong as an ox. You can run around gravel, on sand, or on rocks. Easy to fix if she ever breaks down, if you got snare wire and duct tape lying around. Able to haul a mountain of wood, or even a mountain from where it was stood. Sure, you don't think Mount Peyton always was there. I hauled that there on a deer, for a beer. And you've seen those young fellows out skipping on water. Well, the twelve will do that, though I don't usually bother. Tell me and the missus are sick of the slush, and the cold, and the snow, and then Sheila's brush. Is then that she'll say, get me out of this fast. So we'd jump on the twelve, and I'd give her the gas. Where to, my ducky? Tis then I will say, as we're hitting Mach 1 across St. Mary's Bay. She'll say, keep going south till I tell you to stop, as we pass Nova Scotia, just touching the lot. Down the American shore, to be sure, and then across Florida to pick up some speed. Then it's back on the water to a nice sunny island, and an hour from home we're back on the dry land, led back on the beach with the snowsuit hove off and some tropical drinks and a tropical scoff. So what's the big deal, you say right off the bat? Everyone knows a 12 will do that. Well, there's one trip I took around 40 years back, you might not believe, but I'll swear on a stack, of Bibles is true, 
Not a word of a lie. I wouldn't stretch things. I'm not that kind of guy. I was out on the 12 for a few sticks of wood, not doing much, not doing very good. There was nothing but scrap right to the horizon. I'm telling you, boys, I was just about poison. But then I spied a new place a little ways off, thought I'd look for wood there, gassed up and took off. Well, it wasn't any better. In fact, it was worse. Abba Tibby's been here, I let out the curse. Guess I'll boil the kettle, have a lunch and some tea, then go home with the missus and watch land and sea. Well, just at that moment, a skidoo came along and pitched down beside me. But something was wrong, a strange-looking rig, and a hard-looking ride. Then a hatch opened up and a man stepped outside. He didn't say much, he just looked all around. Then suddenly he moved, put one foot on the ground, and spoke up the words that he had on his mind. One small step for man, a giant leap for mankind. Yes, boy, says I, but no firewood, see? I'd say Kruger's been here. You want a cup of tea? Well, he hadn't seen me, and he got quite a fright. His name was uh, Armstrong, and he was a little uptight. We got a problem, Houston, he said, as I offered roast capelin and a bit of hard bread. He said, I'm not hungry, and he looked pretty sad, but he glutched down the last lassie bun that I had. Then he jumped right back into his queer-looking rig, all sooky and cross, not nearly so big. As before, when out of the sky he had dropped, I passed him going home just like he was stopped. So now the twelve is let up, and she's not doing much. I took out the motor, the belt, and the clutch, and shipped them to Churchill for a pretty good dime while the turbines are down for some maintenance time. Guess it's back in the woods pretty soon, cutting vars, though NASA wants to know if there's water on Mars. But I won't be going there any day soon if they don't tell the truth about that day on the moon. So don't mind the computer and don't mind the plane. Don't mind the wheel. They're all pretty lame. The world's greatest invention, as is now revealed, was Mr. Bombardier's 12 Elaine snowmobile. Great. Thank you very much. That's great. <laughs> so when did you write that? How, how, was oh, that? that was number four. The fourth one I wrote. So, And I didn't start till. 2005 at age 52 <laughs> so that was uh, about 2006 or 7 yeah yeah so it, it, I, I love how this how this uh, has become a new chapter in your life and how you, so know, do I. you 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 started off you said you'd never written recitations before and then um, and that that one in particular you, you've worked with Marnie Parsons with uh, yes. running the goat press to bless her heart yes she she publishes them in uh, individual chapbooks yeah and she just sent me the latest sales figures the other day, and I guess there's about 1,800 of them out there somewhere now. So that's, yeah. that's pretty neat. I just don't know where it came from, but yeah, and and, and people seem um, pretty tickled with the fact that recitation is still a, a tradition that's happening here in yeah. the province. You know, you you've also been doing the uh, the stage to stage performances. Uh, mm. with a couple other uh, yeah. recitationists and and those are are incredibly popular people seem to love uh love hearing you guys yeah you know, it seems to uh, i think it's part of our our heritage and culture here and it sort of uh, died out for a little while there and it was only kept alive by people like kelly russell and a few others yeah uh, bless their hearts and now it seems to be on a bit of a revival and every time we have a show at the lspu hall well we've had about five or six they they all sell out and now they were at the uh, folk festival um on the main stage and that's me and um harry ingram hubert fury and dave penny yeah also known as stage to stage so um yeah there seems to be uh, a, an appetite and a, a revival 
going on. And, and what I love about uh, hearing you you group perform is that you all you're all doing recitations, but you all have your own styles. Like you're all very yeah. different, you know. Yeah. Uh, you know, like Dave Penny is kind of the more lyrical, musical kind of recitation, yeah. and Dave does it in that sort of sing song style. Which, and if I I got nothing to base this on, but if I had to guess, I'd say that's how they did them 500 years ago. Yeah. So it, I, where did Dave get it? It just it exists in him. Yeah. Harry is our traditionalist. He knows a bunch of uh, the old ones, which I don't know and which I did. Uh, Hubert has his own style. He's our senior member, uh, the Oracle of Harbor, Maine. That's what we call him. Yeah. And uh, his stuff is funny, and he also writes very touching and, and poignant ones. And um, my stuff, I don't know how to describe it, but the, it's you're a great the, bit of fun. Between the four of us, we just have a blast. Doing yeah, it. You're, you're, I love your, your the tall tale element, like you said, the, based yeah. on those old trapper stories. <laughs> well, Dave, you know this has been a treat. Thank you for coming in and and talking to us. It's always a delight to have a conversation. Well, thanks for having you. me, and I appreciate the chance. Thank you. All right. You have been listening to Living Heritage. Um, my name is Dale Jarvis, and this is uh, a program of CHMR. Uh, Living Heritage is a production of CHMR Radio, and it's done in cooperation with the Heritage Foundation of Newfoundland and Labrador. Our production assistant is Tara Barrett. You can find us online at ichblog.ca or on iTunes. Thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs>